the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, it is indeed, and a good morning to you. Thank you very much for joining us on AM 1420. The answer is we get started at 8 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on a Wednesday, the 8th morning of the 4th month of the year of our Lord, 2020. Holy Week continues, and of course, if we ever needed more of a reason to pray, not that you should, uh, make sure that you are uh, during this week. Uh, pray for yourself, pray for your loved ones, pray for uh, this nation, pray for an end to this uh, uh, this viral scourge that we are all dealing with right now and pray that we can get our lives back to normal sooner rather than later because more lives may indeed depend upon that that's how we begin this morning coming up on the program we are going to turn from faith to science and we're going to talk to a scientist of sorts ted sislak is going to be joining us yes kathy uh i'm talking about your brother a listener of mine who uh sent me a message on twitter uh a few days ago told me about her brothers plural one of her brothers, uh, Kathy says, is actually, an inf- uh, they're both infectious disease specialists. One is the head of communicable diseases in Oregon, uh, of the Oregon Public Health Department. The other is a professor of infectious disease and bioterrorism and epidemiology at the University of Nebraska. That one is Ted Sislak, and Ted is going to be joining us coming up in about uh, 30 minutes, a little less, actually about 25 minutes, and he is going to take your phone calls. This is important for you to know. Dr. Sislak is going to talk to us about... um, uh, all of this, really, quite frankly, we're going to talk about the models, we're going to talk about the data, we're going to talk about the flawed data, we're going to talk about the accurate data, we're going to talk about the predictions, and more as it pertains. And also about the origin, if he can speak to that, since he does uh, teach and is a professor of bioterrorism, the origin of this particular um, Chinese uh, coronavirus that we are all dealing with right now. We know the origin is China. Of course, the question is, is whether or not it was accidental or whether it was something that was cooked up in a lab. 
and released. So, uh, Dr. Sislak is going to be joining us in about a half an hour. Then, special treat for you as a Wednesday listener of The Authority, Peter Kersenow, who is normally our Tuesday guest. Kersenow joins us at 10 o'clock, 1010-ish. Uh, this morning here on AM 1420, the answer with analysis of all of these things. So two great guests. You're going to want to be here, especially at 935, half an hour from now, and have your question ready. 216-901-0945. What do you want to know from uh, this professor of infectious disease, bioterrorism, and epidemiology at the University of Nebraska? Uh, really, really uh, great guest for us to talk to. And thanks to Kathy for facilitating that. And I'm looking forward to it. Okay. So, uh, and by the way, what's even better than this, um, Dr. Sislak used to be the Surgeon General's point man. I forgot to tell you this part about his little mini bio I just shared with you as far as his title. Used to be the Surgeon General's point man on bioterrorism, worked at Fort Detrick, which houses our biological defense program. <laughs> this is pretty amazing. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation. Looking forward to it. So that's coming up uh, again at 935. I want to start this morning by talking about the models. I want to start this morning by talking about what data is being used to establish the public policy that has us all on lockdown in the state of Ohio. And quite frankly, almost across the entire country. There's still a handful of states that have held out and not had direct orders from their governors to um, uh, stay at home or shelter in place or whatever the case may be, leave the home only in an emergency or to pick up food or emergency supplies. Um, I want to talk about how and why it is those orders are being given. And obviously, the primary driver of these orders, including the ones here in Ohio by Governor DeWine and Dr. Labcoat, um, and I'm sorry, I'm going to continue. If you didn't hear that yesterday, I find it very troubling. I'm not a fan of of everybody's favorite Ohio hero, Amy Acton. Uh, just not not a believer in what she's selling. Uh, not a believer in her methodology. Not a believer in her early predictions. And not a believer in her need to sell herself as a doctor by wearing a lab coat every time she appears on one of these briefings. Doctor Burks doesn't do that. Doctor Fauci doesn't do that. No other doctors do that. Doctor uh, Adams doesn't do that. The Surgeon General, but she always got to have that lab coat saying, "See, I'm more important." Anyway, uh, Doctor um, or excuse me, uh, uh, Governor Dewine and Doctor Labcoat are using the models that have been put for put forth as the best predictors of the spread of the virus, the number of serious cases that will require hospitalization from the virus, and, of course, deaths from the, uh, from the virus. And one of the things that they're using, of course, I mean, look, let's be honest, just like a computer, you know what GIGO means, right? It's started back when computers were first developed. GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. If you feed data that is that is faulty, if you feed a bunch of garbage into a computer, no matter what kind of a program it is, it's going to spit out garbage, such as the models with the models that we are talking about as far as the spread and the seriousness of the Chinese coronavirus. The models are being fed garbage and so therefore they are spewing forth garbage in in large in a large sense what am i talking about what i'm talking about is the fact that dr burks yesterday pretty much confirmed in the white house press conference uh, uh you know daily briefing on the uh, on the battle against this pandemic dr burks pretty much admitted yesterday that anybody who is tested has tested positive for coronavirus and dies 
is going to go into the data that they use to feed into the models and to establish public policy as a COVID-19 death. They died from, from coronavirus. Even if they had a condition that was going to kill them anyway, in short order. For example, there are hospice patients me, and you know what hospice patients mean, of course. Hospice care, someone is in hospice care, that means they are just waiting to pass on. The attempts to save their lives are now futile. It cannot happen. They are, they are essentially being kept comfortable and pain-free until they pass on. They're, they're, they're very near that time, the time of their passing, right? I'm trying to be as gentle about this as possible for obvious reasons. Um, that's a terrible thing, obviously, but obviously hospice care is a good thing because people do need to be comforted and, and made comfortable during their, their terrible time. But um, there are individuals who are in hospice care who have then tested for coronavirus. Then they pass on, which they were going to do anyway, and the government is tracking that and counting that as a COVID-19 death. This is happening. This is a thing. They are manipulating data in ways that really, really need to be exposed. There was another case of of an infant who apparently had tested positive coronavirus who was smothered by their caregiver. And the infant's death was tracked as a coronavirus death, reported as such by the governor of Vermont. We're going to talk about that. Basically, anybody who has coronavirus and dies is being counted as having died from the coronavirus, even if they had situations or circumstances uh, that that completely preceded, and in my view, superseded uh, the coronavirus itself. If somebody has coronavirus and dies, they get, go into the model as a coronavirus death. And those are the numbers that are being fed into these models. And these models then, of course, are what is being used to uh, establish public policy in the state of Ohio and elsewhere. So I think in this country, we've taken a very liberal approach to mortality. And I think the reporting here has been pretty straightforward over the last five to six weeks. Prior to that, when there wasn't testing in January and February, that's a very different situation um, and unknown. There are other countries that if you had a pre-existing condition, and let's say the virus caused you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem, some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not a COVID-19 death. Um, Right now, we're still recording it, and we'll, I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to mark it as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that. If someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting it as a death from COVID-19. If someone dies with coronavirus, we are calling it a death because of coronavirus, even if coronavirus was not going to kill them on its own. 
even if they had a pre-existing condition that was fatal and was going to cost them their lives at some point anyway, whether it's near, such as somebody in hospice care, or whether it is somebody a little further out. If they have COVID-19, we're calling that the responsibility, or we're calling the uh, disease, the virus, responsible for the deaths. It was a startling admission, a startling admission. And I saw a great example, or not an example, rather, an analogy yesterday after this admission was made by Dr. Burks. And I want to share it. So I, this is not mine. I, I'm not, I can't take credit for it. It's a Twitter user who really kind of uh, did this, said this the best way. If a guy gets into a bar fight and is killed, and then the medical examiner performs an autopsy and finds out the individual was HIV positive, According to the way our government is now tallying deaths, that individual's cause of death would be AIDS. Sounds insane, doesn't it? Sounds stupid, right? Got killed in a bar fight. I got killed from a brain hemorrhage or something, but he had HIV. So you know what? That's an AIDS—that's an HIV death or an AIDS death. Uh, AIDS death, rather. Think about that for a moment. It's a, it's a, it's a best analogy that I think I've heard so far. So, meanwhile. Hospitals are reporting a very mysterious, sharp decline in heart attack deaths. Hospitals are reporting a very serious, sharp decline in pneumonia deaths, far below what would be in a typical uh, season like this. Why? Are people no longer having heart attacks? Are people no longer getting pneumonia and dying from it? No, it's just that every one of them is being counted as an H or as a uh, COVID death. A coronavirus death. Heart attacks haven't declined. They're just being reclassified as coronavirus deaths, even in many circumstances, according to reporting, in people who had not even had the COVID test. But they were told, the medical, the, uh, me, the, uh, uh, medical providers were told by family and others, he was, he was uh, coughing a lot. He was sneezing, he was feeling a little bit feverish, he was a little bit short of breath or whatever. Oh, well, he was presenting with symptoms that sound an awful lot like COVID. We're calling it COVID, not a heart attack. And these are the decisions that are being made that lead to the decisions that have been made about keeping Ohio and the United States on economic lockdown. The numbers are questionable at best i will not sit here and be irresponsible and say that their numbers are all flawed or are all fraudulent nope not going to get me to do that but they are questionable they are questionable 216-901-0945 888-281-1110 it's the bob france authority right back after this on am 1420 the answer Nine twenty-five. Now we continue on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. I want to share a little bit more about the numbers that we are talking about. The models that we rely on are proving to be largely questionable, if not flat out inaccurate, because of some of the uh, 
questionable again. I guess I'm just going to stick with questionable. Questionable counting of the deaths. Last night, Tucker Carlson uh, spoke on this after Dr. Burks um, made her admission that virtually anybody with COVID is being counted as a death from COVID during the White House press briefing yesterday. Tucker Carlson dug a little deeper. Their model has done perhaps more than any other piece of academic research to shape our response to the coronavirus crisis. By the way, the model he's talking about is the model I told you about on yesterday's show. So we were kind of out in front of this. And that was the University of Washington model that has been one of the, as Tucker just said, one of the most... um, uh, one of the go-to models, if you will, that governors and um, CDC officials and so on and others are looking at to determine you know, what the spread is going to be, what the peak is going to be, what the uh, course of action from elected officials should be. And it was woefully inaccurate. So how accurate has that model been? Here are some numbers. Initially, the IHME predicted that on April 4th, the state of New York would require 65,000 hospital beds to handle infected patients. The low-end estimate of what the state would need was nearly 48,000 beds. In fact, on April 4th, New York had fewer than 16,000 hospitalizations for coronavirus. And many other states fell far below the model's projections as well, many states. Over the weekend, the IHME updated its model. Its projections across the country have been scaled back dramatically. And yet they are still significantly overstated. For example, today, which is April 7th, the updated IHME model predicts that New York will need 25,000 hospital beds. As of this morning, the real number was just under 17,500. The new model also predicted that as of today, almost 6,600 people would be in intensive care, and the actual number is just under 4,600. In Florida, the new model predicted 4,000 people would be hospitalized. The reality in Florida tonight is that not even 2,000 are. And it wasn't just Florida and New York. The IHME got it wrong in state after state after state. By the way, for America, this is great news, and we should celebrate it. It's much better than we thought. Though, unfortunately, on the question of total deaths, the model has been more accurate, though it still tends to overshoot. For example, yesterday, the IHME predicted 784 deaths for New York. The state finished the day with about 600. For the entire country, the model predicts about 2,000 deaths today, and sadly, it seems like we'll finish somewhere around that number. But that may not be the whole story. There is nuance within those numbers, as there always is in social science. For many years, the CDC has tracked the total number of Americans who die every week from pneumonia. For the last few weeks, that number has come in far lower than at the same moment in previous years. How could that be? Well, it seems entirely possible that doctors are classifying conventional pneumonia deaths as COVID-19 deaths. And that would mean this epidemic is being credited for thousands of deaths that would have occurred if the virus never appeared here. We don't know that for certain, but it's certainly worth considering. And hence the word that I keep using, questionable. It is questionable. And Dr. Burks last night gave us reason to question it by stating at the White House press briefing from the White House uh, Coronavirus Response Task Force, I like to give it its full name from time to time, the one headed up by Vice President Pence, Dr. Burke said, yeah, if somebody has COVID we are count- and dies, we are counting it as a death from COVID, even if COVID didn't kill them. Something is skewing those numbers. Nor do we know exactly why the model predicted so many more hospitalizations than we have actually had. Now, you will hear people say, you're hearing them say now, that this is evidence that the shutdowns and social distancing must be working. 
but not so fast. Uh -huh. Those measures were built into the model in the first place. They've already been taken into account. And we are still doing far better than what epidemiologists believe was the best case scenario. That is the part that I want everybody listening right now that is disagreeing with, with the evaluation and the analysis that I'm providing. And the Tucker Carlson provided, and that Brit Humans, a number of other people that we're going to play here for you, and elected officials are providing. And that is the fact that you can't say, well, this is all wrong because we socially distanced, because we practiced mitigation. Therefore, you can't criticize the models. No, the models were based on mitigation, based on everybody staying home. This is going to be how bad it will be. And it is far, far, far less serious than uh, those models would have predicted, even considering mitigation steps. Going to take a time out now because I've got a guest coming up, somebody that I want you to hear from and somebody that I want you to talk to. If you've got a question about this infectious disease and you really need an expert's opinion, Dr. Ted Sislak is going to be joining us. He is a pediatrician and infectious disease physician, and he serves as the medical director for the University of uh, Nebraska's quarantine unit. He is the medical co-director of its biocontainment unit. He is all about biosecurity, biopreparedness, emergency infectious disease, emerging infectious diseases, and more. Dr. Ted Sislak will join us to take your questions. Get in line now on AM 1420, The Answer. Nine thirty-five. Now we continue on AM fourteen twenty. The answer. I want to dive right into this segment because I've got a guest on that I want to give a lot of time to. This is kind of amazing. I've got uh, I've got two different biographies, little mini bios on Doctor uh, Ted Sislak. If I'm saying his name correctly, which I'll ask in a moment, he was uh, referred to me by his sister, who described her brother this way. Quote. Actually, she said this, both of my brothers are infectious disease specialists with pretty impressive resumes. One head of communicable diseases of uh, the Oregon Public Health Department. The other is a professor of infectious disease, bioterrorism, and epidemiology at the University of Nebraska. Uh, that's pretty a uh, couple of uh, pretty uh, uh, successful individuals indeed, as I know Kathy, who referred them to me. Uh, but that's Kathy's description of her brother, Ted Sislak. She also says this, that he used to be the Surgeon General's point man, her word, on bioterrorism and worked at Fort Detrick, which houses our biological defense program. Pretty safe to say this is uh, an expert in a field of experts when it comes to what we're dealing with right now with the Chinese coronavirus. Dr. Ted Sislak from the University of Nebraska, thank you so much for joining us here in Cleveland. How are you, sir? Hi, Bob. I'm uh, good. My sister's a little generous, I think, with the, with the resume. but uh, uh, I don't well. know. I don't know, because I pulled up your uh, your page as a faculty fellow, and uh, she's spot on. Uh, and I want to give you, give some of that to folks now, uh, and also to point out your origin, too. A pediatrician and infectious disease physician, Dr. Sislak. Is it Sislak, by the way? Am I saying it correctly? Right, Sislak. Thank you. Uh, medical director of uh, UNMC's quarantine unit, medical co-director of its biocontainment unit, and associate director of its Center for Biosecurity, Biopreparedness, and Emerging Infectious Diseases. And I bring all of that up just to be able to say this, too, that your schooling was done here in Ohio. You're a Buckeye. You are literally I, an Ohio State Buckeye, right? I, I am a Buckeye. I grew up in Brunswick and uh, uh, went to my did my undergraduate work in medical school at Ohio. It was just Ohio State when I went. Now, now the Ohio State. Not the. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't have it changed in your bio to have a capital T H E to make sure everybody knows. I need right, to well, do that. 
Doctor, let, let's get into the, the, the meat of all of this. Um, first thing I want to ask you is about the origin. I want to know, just because of your background and, and, and what we're talking about as far as um, biopreparedness, et cetera, and, and, and bioterrorism, um, there, has been, there, there have been disputed reports, varied in multiple reports, about how this thing really happened. Did it come from a particular uh, um, species of bat in Wuhan, China, that was uh, eaten and spread by uh, the wet markets of China? Or, as some other reports have indicated, were they doing research on this certain type of bat that was not even native to that area of China? Uh, and did, did that research either get out intentionally or accidentally from one of the bioweaponry labs or bioterror labs, if you will, in Wuhan, China? What is your read on that, Doctor? Well, Bob, uh, the short answer, I think, is uh, most of us feel it's more likely the former, uh, that this disease uh, jumped into humans either directly from bats um, or through an intermediate uh, reservoir host. Uh, uh, some folks have brought up the possibility of an escape from a bioweapons lab. Uh, I can't say that that could not have happened, but I think most of us feel that's far less likely than that this was a naturally occurring uh, jump from uh, one species to another, because we know that those sorts of events um, happen fairly regularly. And as with so many uh, serious human pathogens, bats seem to be, uh, the common thread, and yet the bats don't seem to get sick from many of these diseases that they pass on to us. So whether humans contracted it uh, directly from the bats or whether there was an intermediate reservoir host, we're not sure. Some people have postulated that uh, the pangolin, which is uh, kind of a spiny anteater um, that's sold in those wet markets, might be that intermediate reservoir, and that the first human cases um, may have originated from contact with those pangolins. But again, that's speculation, and clearly the vast majority of people who have contracted this disease have not had contact with pangolins. The the one study, this is just a follow-up on that, Doctor, the one study that I was uh, citing um, uh, concluded that the deadly virus did come out of local labs in the Hubei province and in Wuhan there is the fact that the horseshoe bat that is being blamed for this is not sold in the Chinese wet markets and is not native to Wuhan. In fact, the closest colony of bats, that type of bat that is being blamed for this, is around 900 kilometers away. Um, and again, no no evidence that they're, they're caught, collected, and sold in the Wuhan wet markets. Um, does that give any reason, or should it give us any more reason to kind of question whether or not maybe they were researching on those horseshoe bats in these labs? Because that is what one paper written by uh, scientists in South uh, at the uh, South China University of Technology have written. They have said that uh, the likelihood of these bats just being there natively and being sold and after being caught or captured or killed or whatever is very, very low because they're not anywhere near Wuhan. Right. No, we are uh, we are tracking uh, those stories. Um, we we take them with a great degree of concern. Um, we do know that there are two uh, biosafety four level laboratories in the greater Wuhan area. Um, we know that those laboratories have some affiliation with the uh, Chinese military, and so I think it's a very fair question. I'm also aware of those reports that the horseshoe bat is not native to the Wuhan area. 
but uh, a, a few caveats. First of all, I, I don't think we're certain that this virus came from the the intermediate horseshoe bat necessarily, although that that is a popular theory. Um, uh, second of all, we're not sure what's sold in those wet markets in Wuhan. The uh, the variety of species sold in those markets is incredible and uh, changes uh, from time to time and with availability. So, again, we're interested in those reports. We're certainly tracking them. I'm uh, certain that people with uh, higher security clearances than I am are uh, are tracking them even more intensely. So I think it remains to be seen. Um, uh, Again, we do worry about that, but uh, given that diseases like this have emanated from natural sources in the past, makes us think that that's the more likely explanation. Got it, and 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 that's a great answer um, because I don't know that it's one hundred percent certain, but I really appreciate your expertise on that. Doctor Ted Sislak is our guest. He is a uh, an epidemiologist and an expert in uh, uh, bio research, biocontainment, and more uh, in biosecurity. So we can't prove that this was cooked up in a Wuhan lab, but we can prove that the Chinese government covered it up. I want to ask you your opinion as to whether or not we can trust the World Health Organization. January fourteenth, Doctor. Um, the World Health Organization tweeted the following, Preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission of the novel coronavirus identified in Wuhan, China. China covered this up from the very beginning, and it is becoming more and more apparent in recent days and weeks that the World Health Organization helped them as they continue to praise them and are now trying to hail them as being the leaders in the world combating of the uh, of the, the COVID-19 virus. Um, can we trust the World Health Organization that President Trump is now threatening to defund? Well, I, I guess it gets back to the age-old question of who knew what and when did they know it. Um, you, clearly, the Chinese have covered up uh, many aspects of this uh, uh, outbreak. And, you know, I suspect uh, it's a little bit like any large organization uh, uh, you know, I worked for the U.S. military for 30 years, and uh, the military is not a monolithic organization. It's a huge organization with many subcomponents uh, that sometimes appear to work um, at cross purposes. And I suspect the same thing is uh, true in the Chinese government. I'm sure that there are uh, entities within the Chinese government with a very vested interest in uh, covering up. Uh, some aspects of this outbreak. On the other hand, we know that there are uh, courageous folks in the medical uh, establishment in China who have tried to get the word out as quickly as possible and have tried to uh, assist in containing this global outbreak. But bottom line is, yes, there uh, there was certainly some um, uh, some hiding of data uh, on the part of Chinese authorities. I, I think it should have been obvious very early on that this disease was transmissible from person to person. We can argue about exactly how transmissible. So, for example, there's a close cousin of this uh, COVID disease called MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. And we know that even though that's theoretically transmissible from person to person, it doesn't happen uh, real often, and it usually requires very intense interpersonal contact, such as you might see in a hospital setting. So I'll excuse maybe a little bit of uncertainty in the beginning about exactly how transmissible it was, but I think it should have been clear very early on that the disease could have been passed from person to person. 
Dr. Uh, Ted Sislak is our guest. He is an infectious disease physician and professor at the University of Nebraska. He has a particular expertise in bioterror, biosecurity, biopreparedness. Okay, Dr. Sislak, let's talk about what's going on. Um, the mitigation efforts that have been practiced almost around the entire country and are being practiced in most corners of the world now with respect to stay at home, keep six feet away, wash your hands, etc., use masks, etc., etc., um, are these mitigation uh, standards that have been set something that you think are working? And how long do you think we are going to have to continue using them, particularly having everything closed up, having the economy shut down, having schools shuttered, et cetera, et cetera? How long are we going to have to practice these steps, do you think, before we can uh, feel safe enough to come back outside and go back to work again? I think those are uh, great questions, Bob. Uh, so let me take the first one. Yes. Um, so uh, is are, are these draco- very draconian uh, social distancing measures working? I, I think the answer to that question is a very emphatic yes. Um, so they have clearly worked uh, in South Korea, in Spain, in Italy, Germany, Belgium, Switzerland, Austria, Denmark. Those countries, um, those countries I just rattled off, have reached the peak. Uh, of their outbreaks and are now clearly on the downside. Um, in this country, uh, initial projections um, were all over the map, but even the most conservative projections uh, were in the neighborhood of half a million uh, U.S. deaths. Uh, the latest figure uh, from this morning um, uh, for the institute, from the Institute for Health Metrics at the University of Washington. They're one of the uh, top modelers in this country. They do infectious disease modeling. And they've been revising downward their uh, projected death tolls every day. So this morning they're projecting now a final death toll in the United States of about 60,000. So that's tragic. 60,000 deaths means 60,000 tragedies. But that's far, a far cry from the uh, from the half million or a couple million in some estimates um, that we were hearing early on. And the sole reason for that continuing uh, downward revision of those death tolls is the social distancing measures. Okay, uh, let me let me interrupt you there, Doctor, to, to ask about that, because I've, I've, I've covered this with some depth already on the show and reading some other people about this. What I'm told, first of all, that Washington model, you're right, it is very well regarded despite its extraordinary inaccuracies. You know, for example, in New York State, two days ago, the Washington model predicted they would need 60,000 hospital beds. They needed 16,000. They predicted 12,000 ICU. They needed 4,000. And as to the total number of deaths, as you say, from a $500,000 initial estimate, or 500,000 death, rather, initial estimate, to a sixty thousand now, that the the, the uh, mitigation uh, factor was already included in those models. Those we were told those were best case scenarios if we socially distance, if we practice all of these these good personal protective habits that we were going to have five hundred thousand. Those were included in the models we were told, and yet they were still off by eh, four hundred and forty thousand. See that that's why we're all wondering what we can trust. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I'm glad they're off. Um, in, in that direction rather than in the other direction. Right. I, I'm not sure whether the initial estimates assumed um, uh, complete social distancing or not. I, I think the models, and, and I don't, uh, I'm not a modeler, so I don't uh, pretend to 
support or apologize. The, the reason, if I may, before you give the rest of your answer, Doctor, is I'm just going by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks at the press conferences, uh, what, five, six days ago now. They said best-case scenario modeling indicates. That means if we do it all right, if we all socially distance and continue mitigation, blah, 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 they said uh, 100,000 100, to 240,000. Um, right. uh, deaths. And so, again, that's, again, their words. We're factoring mitigation into it, and we're still going to lose over 100, maybe 200, maybe 250,000 people. Uh, yeah. and, and, again, now we're talking 60,000. So it, it, I'm sorry. I just wanted to throw that in there so you know why I said they included the mitigation factors in the model. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I I, I hear you, and I've, I've been listening to Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci uh, as well. Um, and uh, I, I guess I'm, I don't know why the models are wrong. Obviously, all models are, are just that. They're models, they're estimates, and uh, they get refined as time goes on. So the more and more data we gather as this outbreak progresses, uh, the more those models are refined. But I guess I'm glad that they were wrong in, in that direction rather than in the opposite direction. Um, but the 60,000, and, and again, that's still an estimate. We don't know if that will be the final toll. And, and as I said, that's 60,000 tragedies, uh, clearly, and my heart goes out, our hearts go out to those 60,000 families who have lost loved ones. But to put it in perspective, that's, uh, that's maybe one and a half to two times the uh, average annual flu death toll. So, you know, we lose between 20 and 40,000 Americans uh, every year. Uh, due to influenza. Um, in fact, in Ohio, uh, I just looked up some of the Ohio statistics before before I came on the air here. Every year we have seven, between 700 and 1,400 uh, deaths due to influenza in Ohio. They're projecting under 500 deaths due to COVID now um, when it's all said and done in, in the state of Ohio. So I think that's um, a little bit of good news, but but I would caution that that success comes at, a, at, a, at a, an enormous cost. That, uh, that success comes with very draconian social distancing yeah. uh, being put in place. And clearly, we don't want to keep living like this. We want to get back to a situation where we can remove most of these austere social distancing measures. And that's, that's one of the reasons we have you on. We're going to try to get a better idea of exactly how much longer you think we may have to do this and what the uh, new models are showing or what your uh, uh, esteem, uh, your, your uh, experience rather uh, in this area shows you. Um, stick with us for just a moment, Dr. Sislak. I have to take a short time out here. We'll come right back and talk about that on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 9.55, Dr. Ted Sislak is with us. Dr. Sislak, I told my listeners they'd have an opportunity to ask uh, questions of you. We don't get epidemiologists of your stature, uh, infectious disease specialists, quite like you all the time, so we want to take advantage of that. So if it's okay with you, Marcy, go ahead and lock in Dr. Sislak, and let's bring a couple of quick calls up before the top of the hour. Patrick in Cleveland has a question for Dr. Sislak. Patrick, if you're there, go right ahead. Hello, Bob and Doctor, and I really appreciate this. Um, I haven't heard this addressed at all in the media, and this is a very serious question. Um, between um, uh, sexual contact between monogamous adults um, who do have to go out into, uh, you know, and have limited contact with the public, um, is there any guidelines on that? 
That's a great question, I, uh, Patrick. I uh, am not aware of any guidelines. We don't think this disease is likely transmitted through sex, but um, your sexual partner you're obviously in, in incredibly close contact with, and, and, and I'm far more worried that if your sexual partner had been out and had contracted the disease, uh, that they would spread it to you by coughing or sneezing rather than through the sexual act itself. Thank you very much uh, for the question, Patrick. Dr. Sislak, let's go to Dan, who's calling from Middleburg Heights with a question uh, for Dr. Sislak. Go ahead, Dan. Uh, good morning, doctor. I, I've been comparing these figures uh, of the, uh, the, you know, the China flu and the regular uh, you know, uh, seasonal flu, and I'm glad you brought up those figures of between whatever it was, you know, 25 to 40,000 people every year die of this seasonal flu. Right. Why is it that... I think we're bordering on medical, uh, considering these models, you know, that even you are can't actually, you were <laughs> questioning somewhat also, because you can uh-huh. pay people to to put models, if, you, if you're bordering on the political and medical, you can, you can, your assumptions could be anything you want it to be to get an outcome. Now, I want to know, why, are, why isn't anybody uh, concerned about the 34,000 that die every year, and... Uh, uh, and shut down an economy, but yet for this, okay. not even close to this figures, they want to shut everything down. Yeah, Dan, Dan thanks for the call. Doctor, go ahead. Yeah, no, um, we are concerned about the, the 34,000 that die of flu every year. In fact, uh, we probably spend uh, in the medical community uh, more attention and more resources uh, on flu than any other single disease. So, you know, there's Herculean efforts uh, underway every year to create uh, new seasonal flu vaccines and a lot of public health efforts uh, devoted to, to combating flu. So I think we do take that seriously. This uh, disease, uh, like I said, if we end up with 60,000 uh, deaths in the end, that will be a, a pyrrhic victory of sorts in that it will end up being a lot less than um, we had initially anticipated. So that's the good news. Uh, the Again, though, that comes at the cost of very draconian social distancing. Had we not um, I- implemented all those strict measures uh, a few weeks ago, I do think the death toll would be far in excess of the 60,000 we're seeing now, though. Dr. So whether speaking- it was a good idea to shut down the economy, I, I feel your pain. I uh, wonder about that myself. I know we're all suffering from, you know, uh, the the austere measures taken to close down this economy. So I think only history will will tell whether it was worth it or not. Doctor, last question, and I'm going to take it, even though I have more callers because we're short on time here. And it's a follow-up on the last caller when he asked about uh, the pneumonia, and, and, and actually he asked about influenza. And I want to ask about pneumonia because the number of deaths that we are coming up with here are also in question after what Dr. Burke said yesterday about anybody who had COVID, if they die, we're, tr- we're charting them as a COVID death. And that means even people in hospice care who are going to die soon, if they have COVID symptoms, even if they're not being tested, but if they have shortness of breath, if they have coughing, et cetera, et cetera, they're saying COVID. Um, they're doing this in, 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 a, in a lot of places, and it really, again, calls into question, um, you know, for example, pneumonia. Pneumonia deaths being tracked right now are far below the same period of time in previous years. Uh, people aren't di- dying less of pneumonia now. It's just that if somebody dies of pneumonia and they also had COVID symptoms, Dr. Burke said we're charting them as COVID deaths. So is the re- even if the number is 60,000, is that legitimate? 
Uh, you bring up a very good point, Bob, and that's a problem that we struggle with in um, in epidemiology uh, all the time. Uh, it's it's true in influenza as well. So when I say there's 25 to 40,000 influenza deaths, again, many of those occur in very elderly people. Uh, mm-hmm. Those folks have a lot of uh, underlying comorbidities, comorbid health conditions, um, and sometimes it's hard to tell what was the the final common pathway or what pushed them over the edge, if you will. Was it the influenza or was it their heart disease or their stroke or their um, underlying chronic pulmonary disease or whatever? But you're, you're absolutely right. It's point well taken that um, right now, if they have COVID, often their death is being recorded as a COVID death. And I think it will only be in retrospect um, that we'll, we'll be able to figure out what the, if, if, if ever, uh, what the mm. real uh, situation was here. Dr. Ted Sislak, I cannot thank you enough. I, I feel so rushed through this. I have so many <laughs> questions for you. So do our listeners. I'd love to have you back on. Maybe we could put a full hour to use here if you're willing to do it so you can take more questions because, uh, again, a man of your expertise and experience, uh, it doesn't come along very often. So uh, thank you very much for the time you are able to give us, doctor, and we hope to talk again real soon. My pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me. Thank you. God bless. Appreciate it. Stay healthy, sir. Okay, 1001, we got to get out now because we got to have our news and make room for Kersenau. That's right. Kersenau on a Wednesday. Uh, the best kind of Kersenau is unexpected Kersenau. He'll be here. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.